0: Last Lord's Day, we began our study in this very small epistle, the epistle written to Philemon. We covered some basic things that we needed to, some background information. The date of the writing of this epistle, we discussed 61 AD, which puts this epistle just seven years after Nero became emperor. It would be just another three years before the Neronian persecution would be made official, whereby Nero commanded that Christians be persecuted and even executed. It would be another five years until Paul, who was in prison, would be beheaded by the order of Nero. We talked about who were the recipients of this epistle last time. We talked about Affia and Archippus, Philemon's uh, wife and, and son. And we, we focused a great deal on Philemon, of course, because he is the principal recipient of this epistle. And if you look with me at Philemon, verse four, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward all, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now, last time we didn't unpack all of these verses, but I wanted to say here this morning, by way of review from last Lord's Day, that those words, faith and love, those descriptors, those qualities of Philemon, are absolutely essential, and we shouldn't gloss over these terms. Paul repeatedly speaks with commendation to the churches regarding their faith and love. This is an important concept. Paul uses it when he's writing to the Colossians. He speaks of their faith in Christ and their love, which they have for all the saints, to the Thessalonians. Similarly, he speaks of their faith, which was greatly enlarged, and the love that they each had for one another, and that grew ever greater all the time. In Ephesians, Paul speaks of the faith and love of the saints there, saying that he prayed in view of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that they had for all the saints. Again, time and again, Paul speaks of the reality and the importance of the faith and the love of the Christian. And I would say to you that this is an important idea and concept. There are many more examples of Paul mentioning the faith and the love of the people of God But I would just submit to you that really when Paul talks about the faith and the love of the Christian, he's really speaking as a physician, giving us a description of the vital signs of the brethren to whom he writes. The child of God has faith and love. And the one is the necessary foundation of the other. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, there is no justification. Without faith, there is nothing. Paul, in the progression of his development a description of what it means to be a, a child of God, a Christian, talks about how it is that we are justified by faith in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. And then in verse 5, he talks about how it is that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. When we come to saving faith in Christ... God pours out his love in us. And that transforms the life of the Christian. Faith and love. And so to Philemon, he says in verse 6, he says, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith, again, may may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake... For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. And then we talked about how it is that Paul identified himself as a prisoner, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Paul's not complaining when he says this. As we talked about last time, he's identifying himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ because he understood very clearly that he was in prison by the ordained will of God. Now I want to say this, and I didn't get into this last time, but we spent a lot of time talking about the importance of this idea of him identifying himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. There's not a single person in this room who has control of their lives, their future, or even how long we'll live. None of us have control over this. All that we have governance over is this matter of serving God for whatever duration of time that he gives us. And we do that by the power of his strength and might, not our own. But think with me for a moment that it is, as it is the case, it's likely the case that Paul, writing to, the, to Philemon, also wrote, probably in conjunction with, with this, the epistle to the Colossians. And listen to Paul describe his situation as he was one who was writing from jail. He says in Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. I have a question for you. What does it mean for Paul to say that his suffering, his suffering in the flesh, he was rejoicing in, but that he speaks of this suffering in his body in such a way that he is filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions? That's kind of a strange and interesting concept, isn't it? I would suggest to you that if we truly understand the, the connotation of what he is saying, it's actually very clear and obvious what he is saying. First of all, he's not saying that there's anything insufficient in Christ's work and sufferings, but he's really speaking in view of his identity with Christ and understanding that we are the body of Christ and that we have all been redeemed and ordained to serve Christ knowing that if we serve the Lord and if we're faithful to him what's going to happen what was the promise that we talked about last time that Paul gave to Timothy it's one of those promises that makes us tremble a little bit when you think about it but remember he says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus what will be persecuted that's what's called an indicative verb that's not a maybe or a might be it's not a mere supposition it's a promise this is going to happen And Paul understood this. He understood that by serving Christ, that meant that throughout the duration of his life, he would have to suffer and face affliction for his servitude to Christ. And so it really bears this idea of the notion of filling up that which has yet to be fulfilled. Um, The word that is used here when he speaks of the idea of that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions that word uh, speaks of the idea of a marker that helps us to think about something that is like half full. Uh, we have the expression of looking at a, a glass that's either half full or half empty, right? And so it's, a, it's really a matter of perspective. The half empty is kind of the view of the pessimist. He's thinking about the fact that there's something lacking. Half full really bears the idea of the fact that there's more to be filled into that glass. In other words, there's more to come. This is the idea, I believe, that Paul is giving us. He's helping us to understand that, listen, he still has life to live for Christ. He still has servitude to offer to Christ. And in that servitude, there will be suffering. And it will be suffering that is identified with Christ because he is Christ's possession. He really bears the same idea when he says that he bore on his body the brand marks of Jesus. The brand marks of Jesus. What he's saying is is that those afflictions, those brand marks, they came by the sovereign will of God. And his suffering was really the fulfillment of what God promised for his own life. Again, Jesus said of Paul that he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must, he says, suffer for my name's sake. It's going to happen. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This was Paul's understanding, and brethren, I must say, this is something that we need to continue to think about and grow in so that we can say with Paul, I rejoice in my sufferings. That's a hard thing to say. That is so counter to human flesh. But this is really what we are to consider as the children of God. Now, look with me at Philemon once again, and I want to read verses 4 through 9 in order to stage what we're going to be examining here this morning. Philemon 4 through 9. Where Paul says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. There he repeats his title again. This morning what I'd like to do briefly is to review why it is that Paul refrains from commanding Philemon. It's an important point of observation because Paul's very careful to say that he could do it. He could command him, but he didn't do it for a very important reason. So we need to consider why it is that Paul refrained from commanding Philemon. We then need to think about, and this is a related concept, we need to think about Paul's desire for Philemon's genuine and real obedience. And these are related concepts. You know, you can tell somebody to to do something and they can obey the command, but that may not come from a heart of genuine joy and willingness. Paul didn't want that. Paul wanted Philemon to do what was right, and he wanted him to do so out of his own free will, which we'll talk about a little bit further here this morning. But let's go to the first point that's made by Paul, and consider why it is that Paul refrained from commanding Philemon Paul stipulated that he had the authority to do so but he says this again he says therefore though i have enough confidence in christ in order to uh, in christ to order you to do that which is proper yet for love's sake i rather appeal to you for love's sake i rather appeal to you Philemon, interestingly, this epistle, interestingly, does not have the typical marker of identity from the apostle Paul, where he normally identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Repeatedly in the epistles, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 1, he does so. He's an apostle who is set apart from the gospel of God. In Galatians where he had to deal with a number of errors at the church at Galatia. He identifies himself as an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Again, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Again and again and again. Multiple epistles you see Paul identifying himself in this way, but not in Philemon. And I believe that what the difference is, is as follows. Paul is writing to Philemon, and even though he could show Philemon his authority and command him, again, he wanted Philemon to respond on the basis of love. And he didn't want to pull his rank or authority. You know, if you're... You see all these detective programs where the detective shows up to somebody's door and they start asking questions and so forth. And in order to verify their authority and right to do this and to carry on this investigation, what do they do? They pull out their badge I'm detective so-and-so and I need to talk to you about some things and so forth. Paul's not pulling out the badge when he writes to Philemon. He's basically letting him know, you know, I could apply my apostolic authority here but I want you to engage in this matter in reference to Onesimus on the basis of the love that you have in your heart, the compassion that you have in your heart, the willingness to do that which is proper, fitting, and right out of a heart of love. You know, it's interesting. Paul has a great number of different things that he writes to churches. Many epistles are filled with scathing rebukes for ungodly conduct and behavior. To the church at Galatia, he calls them foolish Galatians. You see this elsewhere in the Bible. James calls his readers adulterers. There's some very strong rebukes in the scriptures, in the epistles. But this epistle has the unique identity as being an epistle that is based upon a simple, gentle appeal, an appeal that is based upon love. I want you to notice some details in the text here. In Philemon 8, this verse begins with a small, tiny little article in the Greek. It's called an inferential particle. I don't care if you remember that or not, but just know this. That's a very important word in verse 8. And then look with me at verse 9 where he says, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. If we translated that literally, word for word in the Greek, you would say it this way, yet for the love's sake. Now that sounds kind of funny. Nobody really has that in their translations, but that's what's there in the Greek. Yet for the love's sake, I appeal to you. Now why these details? Why am I pointing out these details? Well, first of all, the presence of the inferential particle in verse 8 is key because the inferential particle in the Greek is summarizing for us here in verse 8 what Paul has been talking about. In other words, think of it as a connecting link in a a chain. If you have a chain and you have all these links, know this, that verse 8 is chained to or linked to what precedes it. So in verses four through seven, when Paul is talking about the faith and love that is in Philemon, that is connected to what he says in verse eight. We see this connection, by the way, in Romans chapter nine. Remember when Paul says, when he talks about God's sovereignty regarding uh, his redemption of his people, he says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice in God, is there? May it never be, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then with the inferential particle, Paul then says, it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He's summarizing his point in verse 16. Well, that's what you have here in Philemon 8. When when Paul talks about making this appeal on the basis of love, he is referring back to the love that was in the heart of Philemon. And that's why he says, the love. The love. Again, that sounds funny to say it that way, but that's literally what you have in the Greek. He said, yet for the love's sake, I rather appeal to you. This is what we call an article of previous mention, and it is pointing back to a previous mention of love. And where is that? verses 4 through 7, where he thanked God in his prayers for him because he heard of his love and the faith which he had toward the Lord Jesus, and he repeats it again in verse 6 regarding his faith and his love and the fact that he had knowledge of every good thing for Christ's sake. What he's saying is, and just to tie these things together, Verses 4 through 7, he's saying, Philemon, I want you to understand something. God has poured out this treasury of grace in you. He's redeemed you. He's made you his own possession. He's given you faith. He's given you love. He's poured out his love in your heart. You have this abundant treasury that has been given to you by God. And now I want you to open up that treasure chest and draw out of that treasury the abundance of love that you have for Christ and for God's people, and I want you to act on it. I want you to do the right thing on the basis of that love that I've been talking about. And this then brings us to the second observation, that Paul had a desire not for any obedience, not for mere compliance, But he desired that Philemon would exercise genuine, heartfelt obedience in his appeal. And so he says Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Remember, we talked about this last time. What is the ultimate appeal that he makes? He makes the appeal on behalf of Onesimus that Philemon would receive Onesimus back as if he were Paul himself. In other words, treat Onesimus just like you would treat me, with the same love and affection, grace and mercy that you would extend to me. I want you to extend it to him. That was the appeal. That was the appeal that he would give in this epistle, will give in this epistle. But I want you to think about the motive, Paul's focus on the motive within Philemon. He wants to make sure that Philemon does what is right out of a heart of love and out of a right motive. And so, look with me at verse 14. Speaking of his desire to retain Onesimus for the ministry of the gospel... Paul says this, without your consent, I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. Paul's appeal on behalf of Onesimus was one that he didn't want to carry out or act on apart from Philemon's willful participation. He wanted Philemon to allow for Onesimus to continue on in the ministry with the Apostle Paul, and he wanted it to be that Philemon would accept those terms and agree to this, obey Paul, on the basis of his own free will. Now brethren, we have in this verse two expressions that might confound some who as we think about God's sovereignty and we talk about the doctrines of grace, uh, what good is there in man and what free will does, does any man have? We oftentimes think as those who advocate the, the doctrines of grace and talk, as we talk about the sovereignty of God, sometimes people uh, erroneously assume that there is no such thing as a free will. Well, that's not true. We talked about this recently. The the unbeliever has a free will, but it's a freedom that is limited by the domain of his sin. He's a slave of sin, and so like a a, a prisoner inside of a, a prison, he can walk around in his prison cell and move here and move there, but at the end of the day, what is he? He's a prisoner. So the domain of his freedom is bound and limited by his own sin. But the child of God is now a slave of Christ. We have something very different. We have a freedom that is now unfettered by the bondage of our will to sin as we formerly had. It's interesting. Paul talks of the goodness that is in Philemon. He talks about his free will, and this is where we have to understand that for the unbeliever, there is no goodness in him, right? No, no unbeliever, none of us is the descendants of Adam and Eve. None of us have goodness dwelling within us. The Apostle Paul says that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no, no one who does good, not even one. That's the case in state of the natural man. No one does good. We have no inherent good. And concerning the question of the free will, again, as I just addressed, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So to the extent that we can talk about a free will, it's extremely limited, right? Remember Luther's work called The Bondage of the Will, where he wrote to Erasmus in defense of or rebuking Erasmus and his notion of the will, Luther said, free will is nil, refuting the idea that the natural man has a free will. And he's right. By the way, I don't know what that sounds like in German, but I think I prefer the English. It's kind of catchy. Free will is nil. Yeah, again, we confess and acknowledge this: that the natural man does not have the freedom that the, the Christian has. So he says, free will is nil, and it does no good, nor can do, without grace. And that's an important qualification. By grace, we can do good, right? Because now that we've been freed from the slavery of sin, we're now free to serve as the bond slaves of Christ, to do good by the provision of God's grace. Philemon was to act on his free will and the goodness that God had placed in the treasury of his life through the knowledge of God, through the word of God, and through the faith and love that was now his. Brethren, I would say to you that every human being demonstrates who they are and how they live as slaves based upon their conduct. Everybody is a slave. Whether you're a child of God or you're an unbeliever, everyone is a slave. Again, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave of God. But there are no other third categories. So that's why when you consider the whole of humanity and you consider the conduct of individuals, you're either going to be someone who is living out their slavery to sin such that they can never free themselves from it, or you're going to see someone who is living out their their lives as bond slaves of God where they serve Christ even as imperfect people. As the children of God, the love of Christ now controls us. And so now our choices are governed by the grace of God, by the leading of Christ, And this is the very thing that Paul was seeking in Philemon. Philemon was no longer a slave of sin. Now as a slave of Christ, Paul wanted Philemon to do that which was proper, that which was fitting, to receive Onesimus as if he were Paul himself, extending the very love, grace, and mercy that he would give to Paul, giving that to to Onesimus, and appealing to him as well that he would be allowed to co-labor with Paul, in the ministry. Paul said of himself that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus as we've already talked about was helping Philemon to consider the fact that we all have to go through this life we all must understand we go through this life facing trials and tribulations. This is a part of what it means to be a Christian. And so we're going to suffer. We're going to have trials. We're going to suffer loss. We're going to have times of plenty. We're going to have times when we don't have plenty. We're going to have all kinds of experiences. But Paul wanted Philemon to understand a very important principle, and that is this. Is that as Paul was writing from prison, he was helping his friend understand that, listen, if you want to talk about suffering and loss, understand where I am. I'm a prisoner. And yes, you've lost much, probably. Phile- uh, Onesimus fled as, as Philemon's slave. We don't know whether or not he sold anything from Philemon. It's surmised or guessed that maybe he did. But even with Onesimus fleeing from Philemon, even f- uh, by virtue of the fact that he ran away, this would constitute a loss to Philemon. But in the scheme of things, how much of a loss is this really? Paul, writing as one who was in, who was in prison, is basically letting Philemon know, no, it's not that big of a loss. You know, it's interesting. Philemon could have done could have acted on Onesimus's departure in very severe ways. And as we go through Philemon, I'm going to talk more about this because we need to have a little bit of a conversation about slavery in the first century because I think that this whole subject gets confused, especially when it is conflated with the slavery that was here in America during the transatlantic slave trade. But understand this, the severity of the lawful standard that could have been applied by Philemon, by Roman law, against Onesimus was very severe. Those who had authority and power over a household wielded what was called the patria potestis. This is the power of the father or the power of the head of the household. In Adam Gerwalski's history of slavery, he says this, The power of the father or chief of the household was limitless. In the precincts of the house over both the family and the servants, the father, be he a patrician or plebeian, could sell his son into slavery, but the right was very seldom used, so also a father had the right of life and death over all his family and household. I don't think we really think about this. Um, when we read the scriptures, you have to keep in mind that Roman law had some very severe standards, ones that could be applied, that were constantly being applied, that really resulted in severe treatment and abuse of people. We also learned that slaves who were caught in the act of theft were to be whipped with scourges and be thrown from the rock. What rock? what's called the Tarpeian Rock, which was a sea f- cliff at the southern sub- sub- uh, summit at the Cap- uh, Capitoline Hill, one of the seven hills of Rome overlooking the Roman Forum, and, and, the, and it was a centerpiece of activity in the city of Rome. The Tarpeian Rock was really an ex- execution site where people who violated the law and who were to be executed, they would be Killed either and thrown over the rock, or they would be thrown over that rock alive in order to die by the fall. It was named the Tarpeius Rock after the daughter of Serpius Tarpeius, who was the governor of the citadel on the Capitoline Hill. Tarpeia betrayed the Romans by opening the city gates for an invading army in exchange for gold. For her treachery, She was killed and thrown from the rock, which is roughly eight stories high. Now at that height, in most cases, a fall from that rock would result in death. But there were those who would fall from that rock and they would survive. Imagine having a body tossed at the edge of that cliff, falling to the ground, bones crushed, and that individual living for maybe just a few more minutes or hours, due to their injuries and then succumbing to those injuries. They would live in some cases just long enough to experience horrific agony before they died. According to Roman law, Philemon would have had the right to treat Onesimus in this way. You know, the world allows for us to do all kinds of things. By the standards of secular law, There are a great number of things we could do. Many of them that would be ungodly. Brethren, you know this and I know this. We don't go by that standard. This is a principle of life that we have to understand. We have to live our lives within a nation that has laws and standards. And we have a responsibility to obey governing authorities. But at the end of the day we to obey God rather than man. Our Lord must take priority. His word must take priority over the laws and standards of men. With all the things that Philemon may have been considering regarding how he would deal with Onesimus upon his return, Paul was appealing to him and saying, listen, how are we going to deal with this? Are we going to do this by using Roman standards, secular laws, the things that men craft and create in terms of how we treat people? No. I want you to do the right thing by opening up the treasury of grace that God has poured into you, the grace of his faith and love that he has given to you. I want you to draw from that and I want you to do the right thing. So what is the key principle being presented to us in this text? Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. For the sake of context, I just want to summarize this text without going through all of it. But notice in verse 22, Jesus, as he is teaching the disciples, enjoins them not to be anxious for their lives, knowing that our life is more than food and the body than clothing. He then says in verse 25, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And in all this, he enjoins them to do what? To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He then says in verse 35, amidst this teaching, he says, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks in reference to the Lord and his coming return. Brethren, how are we to live our lives? Waiting for Christ, looking for his return with a great and deep longing for him. And then he says this in verse 42. Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all the possessions. But of the slave who is not ready. In verse 46, that one he will cut into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And then he comes to verse 48, and I am summarizing and simplifying. But he says this, and this is key. And this is the principle that we have before us in Philemon. Where Jesus says, And from everyone who has been given much, shall much be required. From everyone who has been given much, much shall be required. Brethren, help us. The Lord needs to help us daily to understand because we need the help to understand this. The gifts that God has given to us, the riches of his grace, the kindness of his mercy, the treasury of all that he has supplied to us, these gifts are not for us to keep unto ourselves, but these are gifts that God calls us to use and give give to God and to give to others, such that we would be good and faithful stewards who look for and long for the return of our Lord. Our lives are not our own, and what God has given to us we must use for his name's sake. And this is essentially the principle that we have as Paul is writing to Philemon and saying, listen, think of all the things that God has done for you. Think of the faith and love that he has placed in your heart. Draw from that. Act in obedience and do the right thing in ministering to me and ministering to Onesimus, this runaway slave who by the standards of Roman law could be horribly treated. By Roman and secular standards. Brethren, I say to you that each and every one of us, we've all been given much. In fact, we've been given much more than we even fully understand. The only thing that matters is how we use those gifts and provisions from God. God. Because as I said earlier, we don't have governance over and none of us knows the duration of our life, the circumstances of our life. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. And we're not to be anxious about those things. Remember when we mentioned Peter and John and how it is that Peter was crucified upside down. John lived uh, to, to uh, old age and though he suffered greatly, he passed away as, a, as an elderly individual. Neither man had governance over their future. But what they did have was a stewardship to use the treasury of grace that was given to them for the glory of Christ. John the Baptist. Think of John the Baptist and how it is that he was given such an amazing ministry as being basically the red carpet for Christ. And yet he was beheaded. Or Stephen, who preached one sermon before the Sanhedrin, and was stoned to death for it. Brethren, how many times have you heard the expression where someone will say of someone who has passed away, they died before their time? No. Everyone dies on time, but not all live in genuine freedom as the bond slaves of Christ. We all die on time. The question is, how are we going to use our lives? And how are we going to spend the treasury of the gifts of grace that have been given to us? I mentioned Fox's Book of Martyrs last time. And these stunning stories that are therein in that book, it's a bittersweet book. It's hard to read persecu- the persecution of Christians, but it's so encouraging to see the faithfulness of the people of God. During the seventh persecution, Emperor Odysseus, under Emperor Odysseus, we read of a young man, Peter, who was known for his superior qualities of mind and body, and he refused the sacrifice of the goddess Venus when he was told to do so. In his defense, he said, I'm amazed that you sacrifice to an infamous woman whose debaucheries your own writings record and whose life consisted of such perverted actions as your laws would punish. No, I shall offer the true God the acceptable sacrifice of praises and prayers. When the governor of Asia, Optimus, heard this, he ordered that Peter be stretched upon a wheel until all his bones were broken, and then he was beheaded. Peter did not die before his time. He died on time. And he did so as a faithful servant of Christ. Brethren, this is our calling. To remember, from everyone who has been given much, shall much be required. This is Paul's lesson and message to Philemon. And it is a crucial one. We don't have to worry about our futures. We don't have to worry about the things that we don't have control over. But what we are called to do is to be a people who open up that treasury of grace and mercy and love and spend those riches that God has given to us in our servitude of our King. As I said before, Whatever happens in this life, our Savior remains king at all times, in all occasions. And we can praise the Lord for that truth. Alleluia, sing to Jesus. His the scepter, his the throne. Alleluia, his the triumph, his the victory alone. Hark the songs of peaceful Zion. Thunder like a mighty flood. Jesus out of every nation has redeemed us.